We are in Moscow, Russia, a country still part of the Soviet Union. It is the night of the 20th of August, 1991. Crowds of agitated protesters have mounted 12 makeshift barricades surrounding the White House, a building which became the symbol of democracy and freedom overnight. After midnight, the long-awaited attack finally begins. A column of armored personnel carriers breaks through the first line of barricades and comes up against a blockade of trolley buses. The crowd prepares for a battle of their lives to defend the freedom and liberties that they were finally awarded and refused to let go of. Hundreds of bottles of Molotov cocktail are tossed at the approaching military units, many of which are set alight. As they try to break through the blockade, crowds jeer, civilians mount the tanks blocking the soldiers' view, some shielding the paths with their bodies. In the scene of desperation and confusion, three civilian men are tragically killed. That happened in the evening, and it need not have happened, of course. There was so much tension. Nobody knew what was happening. Nobody knew who, at least, was the fault of the plotters because they left everything in the air. So everyone was waiting constantly for an attack on the White House. And when a number of armored vehicles came towards, in the underpass, towards the White House, the Russian Parliamentary Building, serving as the primary office of the government of Russia. A number of people thought they'd come to seize the White House, and so they intervened, jumped on it, jumped on the, on the tank, closed the turret, and as a result, three of them, three young men died. But they hadn't come to seize the White House, they'd come to impose the curfew. Well, what had begun as an attempt to consolidate the Soviet Union, strengthen it, um, and to reverse course of what was then becoming an increasingly dire situation and holding the state together, but that very attempt severely weakened the Soviet Union and basically plunged it into a fatal crisis. And so it lasted only another four months less than four months and then and then uh, was unable to recover from that coup which by and large almost every observer at the time thought including me thought would be the case there was one person i know of who thought the soviet union would still survive who was jerry hoff but he's the only person i think in the aftermath of the coup who thought that the country would truly hold together this podcast will aim to explain the events that occurred during the Soviet coup, the elements of which are both tragic and comedic, but an event which changed the course of history forever. So what was this coup? A failure to preserve the Soviet Union or a victory in securing freedom and democracy? I want to say that it was neither. It was a tragic fight for those who resisted the regime and it was a cartoonist loss for those who tried to preserve it. This is the story of how it happened. The State Committee on the State of Emergency was a group of eight high-level Soviet officials within the Soviet government 
the Communist Party and the KGB, who attempted a coup d'etat on the 19th of August 1991. The primary motive of these communist extremists was to preserve the rule of the communist ideology and prevent the seemingly imminent fall of the Soviet Union. This event could have turned into anything Marvel productions have ever created. The end of the world by the hands of aliens, or a much more realistic nuclear attack. But thankfully, this fantastical coup never came close to being a success story. Daphne Skillen, Dr. Daphne Skillen. In my interview with Dr. Skillen, who used to be a journalist and a media consultant for international agencies like the United Nations and so on, and in Russia I was working with the British um, Foreign Office and USAID and all the donor organizations in the 1990s, basically. Dr. Skillen highlighted the ridicule of the plans coup plotters came up with. There were the KGB groups also, it was called Group B. They were saying that the plans were fantastic in a way. There was, they were going to use secret weapons of mass destruction, that was in the plans, um, to bring down the White House. And he said that if they had done that, um, they would have obliterated the whole White House and everybody in it. So their plans were fantastic. (laughs) They were unrealistic in a way. As I continue telling this story, it is easy to assume that the school was a completely spontaneous event. However, during my interview with Dr. Skillen, she has made a shocking revelation that I found completely surprising. It turns out this coup was planned one year in advance. The coup planners had been planning for a year. So they had everything they needed. They had handcuffs. They had batches and batches of handcuffs ready to imprison people. They had been bugging all the Russian officials, including Gorbachev which was unprecedented, and Raisa, and Raisa's hairdresser, and so on. So they had, they had all the information they needed, and yet, you know, they couldn't actually do it. Committee members flew to Faras, Crimea, to get Gorbachev to support the coup whilst he was on vacation. But after briefly lamenting the stupidity of his colleagues, Gorbachev decided to stay on the sidelines. Failing to get Gorbachev's blessing or support for their ambitious plan, the plotters, also known as the Putschists, placed Gorbachev under house arrest, cutting all his communication with the outside world, or so we're told, and proceeded to replace Gorbachev with the former vice president of the Soviet Union, Gennady Yanayev, a 53-year-old communist conservative. The coup was also a complete surprise for the first elected president of Russia, Boris Yeltsin. He was meant to be arrested on the first day of the coup, the morning of the 19th of August, but the committee members did not regard him as an imminent or a significant enough threat at the time, thereby allowing Yeltsin to make his way to the White House. 
This was perhaps one of the most critical threats the coup plotters overlooked. Yeltsin was in his dacha. The first thing he did was to ring up General Grachov, the commander of the paratroopers, whom he had only just met a month ago. And he said, are you going to help me? And Grachov said, I have orders to obey, but I will um, I will send troops to the White House, which was the Russian parliament, um, to protect you. And so when uh, Yeltsin put the phone down, he told his wife, Grachov was with us, and he knew that he was he had support, and people did come out. That night, Lebed and paratroopers came out to protect him. As Professor Joshua Paulson noted in Jean Sharp's book titled Waging Nonviolent Struggle, the first tanks to arrive to the White House under the direct command of General Lebed did not seem to understand what they were there for, and so they announced their neutrality. Yeltsin then addressed the crowd amassed outside the White House on top of one of the tanks that refused to follow orders given by one of the committee members, the Soviet Defense Minister, General Yazov. Yeltsin proceeded to declare the events as a reactionary anti-constitutional coup and encouraged the military to take his side. The coup didn't fail solely because of the plotters' inability to act. Media outlets actively resisted the potential return to the Soviet times of conservatism, tradition and self-censorship, which severely undermined the Putschists' plans. In their article, Televorot, The Role of Television Coverage in Russia's August 1991 Coup, Victoria Bonnell and Gregory Fryden emphasized the crucial role of the media, stating that the plotters attempted to use television as a mouthpiece for the emergency committee and to suppress information that contradicted the image of a smooth transition to emergency rule. In fact, if the media had been fully controlled by the putschists, then it is very likely that the coup would have been successful. However, they failed to take full control of all media outlets, allowing for individuals to release materials that would otherwise have been censored. Mark Kramer, Harvard University. In our interview, Professor Kramer highlights that the Soviet Union had been undergoing critical times of change. The coup didn't occur in a vacuum. That is, um, there had been massive change underway in the Soviet Union from 1987, but particularly 1988 on. At that point, the Soviet Union was the most interesting and exciting place in the world to be. As the coup plotters enforced their rule on the 19th of August, they ordered the central television to air ballet, opera, and classical music to replace the programs introduced under Gorbachev's perestroika. The same day, the national news program Vrena aired covering the events. While the coup was in progress, Vrena functioned as the authoritative news program on Soviet central television and also, to a considerable extent, the mouthpiece of those in power. The aired report pronounced the country is sinking into an abyss of violence and lawlessness. The use of this alarmist language was part of the script and was meant to justify the military occupation of the capital as a means of resistance to the imminent threat of anarchy. Contrary to the Putschists' plans, 
media outlets mobilized immediately to keep the citizens informed of the ongoing resistance to the coup. The same 9pm news program, Bremer, aired on the 20th of August. However, this time, it presented a more complex and contradictory picture of the situation than the plotters ever intended. With journalists featuring unauthorized footage of Yeltsin on the tank opposite the White House, reports and interviews from the epicenter of events, the population finally realized that there was resistance to the coup. Most of the journalists were against the coup plotters and they were for reform and for Yeltsin. But it was a period where nobody knew what to do. It was wait and see. Nobody was actually wanting to be responsible for anything. And so the chief of the Gostelli Radio, the enormous state television company, just disappeared to his dacha. The people who were in charge, the main one was Valentino Azutkin, he said, well, we're going to show this. They didn't show all of it. They were scared to do that. But they showed Yeltsin on his tank. And they said that the people were talking to the troops and they were putting carnations in the barrels of guns and they were saying, don't, don't shoot. And there were a lot of people around manning barricades and working and producing leaflets. And all this was shown on television, which went right out to 250 million Soviet citizens, potentially, they were watching it. And so they knew that there was resistance to the coup, that Yeltsin had taken on the leadership, decisive leadership against the coup. And of course, Moscovites knew where to go, that it was all happening outside the White House. Brian Martin and Wendy Varney, in their article, Lessons from the 1991 Soviet Coup, detail some of the many forms of resistance that the media utilized. At Izvestia newspaper, printing workers refused to print the paper unless it contained Yeltsin's anti-coup declaration, which they considered an integral part of the news. This active improvisation and disobedience was fueled by liberties that the Soviet people had felt under Gorbachev's rule. Another media event that the committee failed to regulate was the first and only groundbreaking press conference featuring the Putschists. They failed to take into account the seemingly obvious factor that already predetermined this coup's failure, the public's change of mood and perception of the ruling government. It became much more common for journalists to ask provocative questions that would never have been allowed in the past and would have been self-censored. But those times were different. The pro-communist rebels allowed a press conference featuring spontaneous questioning by Soviet reformers, a mistake even a school kid could avoid. Journalists purposefully focused on Yanayev in such a way that his hands were always visible, hands that trembled continuously, conveying great agitation and uncertainty in contrast to his authoritative booming voice. This press conference destroyed the true face of the coup. What was planned as a show of political savvy and competence was transformed into a chillingly comic farce in the blink of an eye or a tremble. When Gorbachev saw it, he said they have no chance of winning. I think it's part of the idea why the Soviet Union imploded. People just had no respect. They didn't see that the Soviet Union had anything to offer anymore. It had gone too far without reform. 
the emergency committee was defeated in this battle over Soviet hearts and minds. Success of the coup was highly dependent on the role of the military. In his article, How the Threat and the Coup Collapsed, Stephen Meyer states that on the eve of the coup, military institution was in deep crisis. In this context, the coup created a serious dilemma for the senior military command. They could have chosen to support the committee as it was in tune with the seniors' concern about the need to bolster the declining prestige of the military, but to actively support the coup risked institutional destruction. On the other hand, the high command could have chosen to stand aloof and allow the coup to fail. It is Gorbachev's progressive policies and his determination to give communism a new face that ultimately led to these splits within the army. Professor Kramer argues that the military wasn't passive. However, they were waiting for Gorbachev to take responsibility for whatever they were to execute. The military played a major role in the coup, so it wasn't passive per se. By all indications, the coup plotters wanted to bring Gorbachev over to their side, even if he did it only very reluctantly. They wanted him to be the one who would order blood to be shed. Um, Kuchkov, the director of the KGB, the chairman of the KGB, was well aware that Gorbachev had a tendency to leave others to take the blame for repression, as, as had happened in January 1991, when there was a crackdown in Lithuania first and then Latvia a week later. It was this unwillingness to take responsibility for the potential bloodshed that prevented the military from acting decisively. They had been talking about their own willingness to do so, but when the decisive moment came on the 19th of August, they were still hoping that Gorbachev would come back and give the orders. They would have been perfectly willing to crack down, but they wanted it to be through a legitimate authority from above. Because of the media's active resistance and the military's inability to act decisively, more and more people learned about resistance to the coup and many did not want to give up the freedom they finally felt under Gorbachev's rule. Masses flooded the streets and cities across the country, and to everyone's surprise, the military did not intervene. When Yeltsin came out and stood on the tank, there were about 500 supporters around the White House. By that evening, there were 10,000. The second day, there were already about 1 million people. Russia was free. The Soviet coup changed the way world history unfolded. The Soviet Union collapsed, its people finally had freedom and democracy, and yet it happened almost accidentally. However, today, Russia went back to its old, almost communist ways, denouncing and pretty much erasing this coup from people's memory. Perhaps this is why we do not hear or know much about the period between the 19th and 22nd of August, 1991. 
the thing that I take away with me is a visceral sense of being in Russia and feeling free. And it was something that you actually felt. It really was a different world. When I go to Russia now, I don't feel it. And before that, I didn't feel it. It was a unique period that must not be lost.